Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you. Testing one, two. Testing. All right. Wow. Let me read something to get us started. What is recovery dharma? Mm -hmm. The word dharma doesn't have a single English meaning. It's a word in an ancient language called Sanskrit. <laughs> Sanskrit. Mm -hmm. uh, and it can be translated as truth, phenomena, or the nature of things. When it's capitalized, the word Dharma usually means the teachings of the Buddha and the practices based on those teachings. The Buddha knew that all human beings, to one degree or another, struggle with craving. The powerful, sometimes blinding desire to change our thoughts, feelings, and circumstances. Those of us who experience addiction have been more driven to use substances or behaviors to do this. But the underlying craving is the same. And even though the Buddha didn't talk specifically about addiction, he understood the obsessive nature of the human mind. He understood our attachment to pleasure and aversion to pain. He understood the extreme links we can sometimes go to, chasing what we want to feel and running away from the feelings we fear. And he found the solution. What do you think of that? I love it. <laughs> Hello, and thanks again for listening to another episode of All Better. I'm your host, Joe Van Wee. Today's guest is Jordan Harris. Jordan is our primary counselor at Fellowship House Outpatient, intensive outpatient, and our partial hospitalization program. We get to uh, know Jordan today. Summary of his background, growing up in a religious family, when his addiction started, and when it came to an end. We also do a deep dive into theology, religion, influence, and indoctrination on children, and what happens when these children become adults, or critical thinking rises up and it's in conflict with the culture you grew up in. We also discuss what recovery dharma is, and Jordan starting the first Recovery Dharma meeting in Lackawanna County. That's every Friday night at 7.30 at 1554 Sanderson Avenue. So it's a, it's a nerd fest of two people who are attracted to theology and the tenets of Buddhism and how you can practice them without having to become a Buddhist. So let's meet Jordan Harris. 
right. We're here with Jordan Harris. I met Jordan, like I think I said in my intro, maybe a little over a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he's the new primary counselor at Fellowship House, our yes. outpatient IOP and PHP program. Jordan, welcome. Thank you. It is a pleasure to uh, be here with you. I've been wanting to do this for quite some time. So, yeah, I'm glad to be here to talk about a very important subject. Jordan, if you can, can you pull that mic just mm-hmm. straight forward and do a little yeah. tech- live technical? Right there. <laughs> yeah, is that a little better? Yeah, <laughs> okay. Jordan, is this your first podcast? It is. It is my first podcast. I listen to uh, quite a few podcasts, but I've never been on one myself. So first time. Yes. yes. What, what have you been listening to? Oh, wow. Going back probably two decades. Um, this American Life was one of my favorite kind of original podcasts. I got into podcasting, at least listening to podcasts a few decades ago. So, yeah, This American Life, like, I, I like a lot of true crime stuff. Um, more recently, uh, Jack Cornfield, Ram Dass. Um, there are a lot of old recordings on some podcasts that they kind of replay. And so I listen to a lot of that stuff. Really good. Really so good. F- for context, Jack Cornfield. Um, mm-hmm. American Buddhist. American Buddhist and... The catastrophe living is that that's uh, John Cabot Zinn. That's John. Yes, Kabat-Zinn. mindfulness-based stress reduction. But he's also another mindfulness practitioner who was influenced uh, quite profoundly by Buddhist thought and practice. So yeah, uh, he's got some great stuff too. Just audio, um, YouTube videos, books, yeah, resources. Yeah. So that's John Cabot Zinn, and then Jack Cornfield uh, as a resource. How, how, what drew you to him? Uh, Jack just- Cornfield. Um, he uh, he studied with Ajahn Shah, who was a Thai forest monk, um, and uh, Jack Cornfield, an American uh, psychotherapist, actually psychiatrist, um, to be more specific, who uh, went over to Thailand, studied uh, with Ajahn Shah, who was one of the foremost um, Buddhist teachers and practitioners in the 20th century. Um, came back to America and kind of popularized Buddhism and mindfulness in a lot of ways. Um, with some other figures too, you might have heard of like Tara Brock, um, uh, Stephen Levine, who's the uh, yeah. father of Noah Levine, um, the guy that started Refuge Recovery. Yep. So yeah, this uh, this American th- this movement in American Buddhism is what uh, what was my kind of first introduction to the philosophy of the East. And um, yeah, I just really gravitated toward, towards kind of the simplicity of the approach and presentation and guys like Cornfield and Tara Brock. And, you know, so yeah, that's kind of, that was kind of my introduction um, to Buddhism, but I, I, I love listening to the podcasts, uh, reading the books, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah. So if we got a field, let me put some lines on it. Yeah. Uh, and for, yeah. for people maybe who don't have context mm-hmm. to Eastern thought sure, or, studying a practice, a daily ritual meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about people of the last hundred years, Western people. Yeah. And maybe some people would be f- definitely familiar with Ram Dass or mm-hmm. say Alan Watts. Sure. But these are other specific people. These are almost like a, an academic echelon of yeah. pra- practitioners of Buddhism, mm-hmm. practitioners of meditation. So we're, we're talking about people of the last 40 years yeah. that have really enlightened or brought to a, a really clear articulation of what 
Buddhism is in mm-hmm. practice. So you got these characters like Joe, not character. I don't want to say character, but mm-hmm. great teachers, Jack Cornfield, mm-hmm. who's never had a scandal. Right? Mm-hmm. These, sure. these legitimate guys sure. that haven't succumbed to having their own occult, which can happen to even an enlightened right. teacher sure. rise around them. Um, who was your, you weren't raised a Buddhist, were you? I was not. I was raised, um, in the, uh, evangelical church. Um, uh, my parents were kind of coming out of the stricter kind of earlier fundamentalism, um, more evangelical, conservative, theologically, a little bit looser on some other stuff, but yeah, Christian, uh, evangelical, eventually, um, Calvinist, uh, very strict wow. Calvinist, reform, <laughs> reform theology. Yeah. Classic and OG. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, on a more serious, I think it, it is, it's relevant, my background kind of, and, uh, how I got into Buddhism because I was raised, um, in a theological context in, um, a spiritual context, which was very, uh, w- which is looking back now very different from the kind of Eastern spirituality um, Buddhist practice that I gravitate towards now. So yes, I was a raised, I was raised Christian um, in the church and uh, yeah, had kind of a spiritual and theological journey of my own. I was actually in the Christian ministry. I was a minister, a Protestant minister at a Presbyterian church for seven years. I went to seminary. I studied theology um, that was a big part of my life and existence. Um, so this was in the last few years, years quite the radical change. But um, yeah, my spiritual kind of theological journey began with uh, Christian theism. Um, wow. Yeah. So Calvinist, this is weird <laughs> for, for me, and I want you to unpack this and, and maybe yeah, educate yeah. me on this. Sure, so, sure. Calvin, you know, to my understanding how I've come to understand Calvinistic movements, it's always put in context historically as the Christianity that became dominant in Mm. early America. Absolutely. Through the Puritans. Yeah. The Puritans, uh, it it set the tone for capitalism of how it could be um, the most moral position economically. Mm -hmm. Um, and Calvinists are a real departure from say Lutherans where they, 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 they came. So, I guess to, to educate any Catholic listeners, you've got the church, Lutheran breaks free with some... Yeah, you know, let's even start earlier. I mean, you've got the church, which um, after the time of Christ is one, really united up until uh, about 1,050 years later, the church splits east and west, right? So you've That's got right. yeah. the Russian Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox. They actually split over a phrase in the Apostles' Creed. Actually, it's not even a phrase, it's a word. Uh, Filioque and the son. So it was one word, one Greek word in the, I'm sorry, not the apostles creed, the Nicene creed um, that they disagreed on. They split in 1050. um, The 16th century rolls around. Even before that 14th century, 13th century, you have a lot of agitators uh, who aren't happy with what's going on in the iconoclast wars. Would that be? Sure. Oh yeah. You got the iconoclasm, right? Um, you have guys like uh, John Huss, uh, John Wycliffe, um, earlier than even Luther, who are yeah. saying, you know, I don't really like what's going on here in the Catholic Church, right? Uh, so by the time Luther comes along in the 1500s, um, he's an Augustinian monk who is fed up with the practice of indulgences. And indulgences were 
um, literally paper tickets that the Catholic Church sold at the time, which if you bought them or purchased them, you could get time off of purgatory um, or you could get time off of purgatory for your loved ones, right? And that's how, um, in large part, St. Peter's Cathedral was built off so of the sale of indulgences. So pre-money pre wheel at yeah. a church picnic. <laughs> yes. You could buy tickets. Very yeah. much so. So Luther, as an Augustinian monk, <clears throat> is really fed up with that. Um, he starts protesting. He's kicked out of the church. Um, his big thing is justification by faith alone, right? So he says, oh, the Catholic Church teaches works righteousness. You have to prove your worth to God, and then maybe in the end he'll accept you. Luther says, no, we're justified, we're accepted, we're saved by faith alone, right? Just yeah. by trusting, by believing. John Calvin comes along. He agrees with Luther, but he disagrees with Luther's understanding of the Lord's Supper. Luther still holds to a very literal physical view of the Eucharist. Calvin says, no, it's a spiritual thing. You're not actually consuming the body and blood yeah. of Christ. Um, but John Calvin also has a very strong kind of predestinarian emphasis. Yeah, God so chooses before the world begins the elect, right? And the damned, right? There's absolute determination behind everything that happens. God's will is supreme. Right? That's what makes him so interesting yes. to me. Manifest destiny kind of ideology that rises with America. Yes. This man believed in determinism and Absolute this allowed for yeah. yeah cruelty in it the did. sense of economic charity. Absolutely. You're, you're, don't worry about it. It was already decided. Absolutely. <laughs> but I, I want to challenge one piece of history. You could correct yeah, me. Yeah, 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 sure. You know, I, the other distinction I would I would know yes. if I had to say the difference between Calvin and Lutheran, mm -hmm. one was really carved out of wood, and that mm -hmm. was Calvin. Mm -hmm. Luther kind of acquiesced to yeah. power, and he did. He yeah. when you know he was there was a letter and written to him to now go out and quell the rioting throughout right. Germany, and, right. and what does he do? He's he says. The church has righteous authority for violence and power right. and to crush these peasants, mm -hmm. the, the, yeah, the, the peasant, peasant revolt. Yeah, the wars, the rebellions, yeah. And then I got a real true character of the guy. This is how far he could go. Academically, he mm -hmm. could challenge the church mm -hmm. and, and intellectually. Mm -hmm. But when violence broke out and people uh, were yes. desperate for food, he writes a letter endorsing the violence used by the nobles, oh, the yes. noble family, to quell the rebellion. Yeah. And I'm like, there's the difference because yeah. when it got hot, yeah. he sided with power. He did. And it, it was very specific. It wasn't like everyone calmed down. He said people deserved mm -hmm. to die that oh, were sure. riding against the crown, oh, the sure. church. Yeah. I was like, even when he went off um, into the Wartburg Castle, I believe, early on in his uh, ministry, there were agitators, right? The peasants were rebelling. Yeah. yeah. And early on, he supported violence. He was an advocate of violence. Later on, he became very anti-Semitic um, and uh, just verbally. Um, deicide, charging deicide everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> But yeah, Luther individually is an interesting person. Um, yeah. And yeah, cut from a different cloth slightly, I guess, uh, when we kind of compare him uh, to Calvin relative to Calvin. But um, he was raised in privilege and he right. was adopted in that privilege. So yes. that probably you and I, you know coming from a clinical experience mm -hmm. can see what that formed in a personality. Mm -hmm. he, he's offered privilege. It's through grace and adoption and an education. Mm -hmm. Calvin, man, that dude is like, <laughs> he reminds me of some like militant version of Wilm Hoff. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> he just he's, looks uh, ripped. Yeah, yeah. And that's that Calvin, um, my father began exploring Calvinism when I was when I was a teenager, and he began just voraciously reading Puritan and Reformed literature. And I was exposed to a lot of that, but Calvin was the golden standard. Calvin was um, as close to Orthodox as you can possibly get. Calvin, um, yeah, some of the other later figures, but yeah. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Joe Van Wee. the host of All Better. And I'm also the CEO of Fellowship House. At Fellowship House, we believe long-term recovery requires a personality change as well as a clinical intervention. These ideas can take several months to achieve. Our philosophy is to provide a safe, therapeutic, and exceedingly active environment for patients to achieve these personality changes and find joy in the Fellowship of Recovery, which will allow for long-term sobriety. We believe that recovery extends beyond treatment and peer-to-peer communities into real life. In Fellowship House, we provide a design for living that focuses on education and service. We have strong relationships with the 12 universities and vocational schools in the area and ensure that our fellows pursue their personal goals while entering sobriety. We also stress independence and responsibility making sure each individual is financially solid and self and helping to make their community a better place. As a treatment center, Fellowship House offers both residential and outpatient treatment services to individuals and families affected by addiction and alcoholism. We're a DDAP licensed provider of general outpatient, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization programming as well as a level of care assessments. If you want to find out more information about Fellowship House, please visit fellowshiphouses.com. Let's depart for a second. Let Mm -hmm. me ask uh, the personal story. You said your dad just started reading that when you were a teenager. What were you in your youth? What was your understanding, say, the first 10 years of your life of what, if there was a second realm operating a divinity somewhere mm-hmm. and then you kind of enter Calvinism in your teenage yeah. years. How so you- my parents were both raised um, kind of fundamentalist Southern Baptist um, and my father's theological journey. Uh, I would say more kind of revivalistic evangelical, my first uh, 10 years. Um, uh, well, I wouldn't even say first 10 years. I was first about like 15 years uh, growing up. So, um, free will. So very different from kind of the Calvinism, um, free will Baptist, uh, that's kind of part of our family's heritage. That's another kind of interesting, uh, uh, group of people, but, um, yeah, we believed, uh, very strong theism. So God's up there. Um, you know, in terms of predestination, things like that, we really didn't talk about that. We, we focused more growing up on the decision that was necessary in order to be saved. We needed to make this decision for Jesus. We need to accept him into our heart. We need to have this kind of faith um, and show that faith by deciding for uh, Christ and for a life of holiness and also baptism. So we are Baptists um, and the, the outward sign of baptism was kind of very important, but it was evangelical, conservative, Protestantism, 
Um, I would say kind of my father's shift to Calvinism was, was kind of an evolution, I guess, and grew out of his already existing kind of conservative evangelical theology. Um, but we were uh, taught that, um, you know, God uh, is loving, but God is also just and filled with wrath. And if you do not accept Jesus into your heart and follow him and give your life to him, you will experience um, in hell eternal conscious torment forever. That was really um, at the center of our soteriology, our doctrine of salvation, uh, heaven and hell, right? Yeah. If you choose to... Um, to be a Christian, right? You'll live with God in heaven forever, uh, or the new heavens and the new earth. If you rebel, um, your body and your soul will be tormented by God forever and ever. And imagine as a child being yeah. exposed to that kind of thing. I've become interested. I don't have to. <laughs> Just uh, <laughs> even more recently in religious trauma yeah. and theological trauma. Yeah. And as I look back, um, it's actually a new book coming out specifically on religious trauma. And I can't remember the lady's name who wrote it, but um, she talks about how theological systems and um, particular religious beliefs can have a yeah. profound uh, effect upon the developing brain of a child when you're told or, that God literally hates you or an adult. Or, or the planet. Or the planet. Yeah. Whoever. Get us all yeah. killed. Get us all killed. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. I mean, God is kind of up there and he's mad at the world, right? So- um, and whose fault's that? <laughs> right, right. Well, it's your fault. Yeah. You're dead in trespasses it's, and sins. You're a spiritual zombie. We were we referred to ourselves as as worms, right? We're yeah. we're worms. We're nothing. Um, we're always having to kind of measure up, and that's exhausting, spiritually exhausting. Uh, and there's a paradox that can't be reconciled. Mm -hmm. And I always note this in the sense Judaism. Um, yeah, they forgot to lift one piece of a religion that preceded them. They should have mm -hmm. took that part and yes. Zoroasterism yes. that says there's an equal. Yes. Um, like the yin and yang that yeah. would have gave Mesopotamia yeah. the rest of it, the yin and yang, that there's another opposing right. force to God. And you have even in early Christianity, As, the Gnostics who, you know, were putting forward something like similar. Yeah, yeah. They can reconcile. Why, why does evil exist from an omnipotent purity? Mm -hmm. It's just a monk's game to think, right. okay, what it, it, it's an accidental creation mm -hmm. uh, or the Lucifer or Satan. Right. And right. he, it, it just, it's nonsensical, yeah. but of course you would have to teach that to right. children because erase your memory, mm -hmm. you erase secular. Mm -hmm. And now a man approaches you and teaches you these things. Mm -hmm. You're not going to submit as easily <laughs> to right. these, you know, fantastical claims. Right. right. That's and that's it. what they are. Yeah. Yeah. And I get it. I get religions. Um, but I, I think the consequences are much higher today, mm -hmm. especially politically. Sure. Oh, yeah. Politics can replace religion. And yeah. that's even really scary because oh, yeah. the framework's there for uh, a binary kind of opposition, a leader, an enemy, a mm -hmm. leader. Uh, the real fun begins after you're dead. So it'll mm -hmm. all come clean in the wash. Don't right. worry. We'll, we'll get our. It's um, it's madness. It it's is. madness when we could split atoms and people are thinking this way right. and are in charge of this mm -hmm. kind of weaponry. I right. Mean, all right. I went on too long. No, it's <laughs> it's dualism though, and I think yeah, dual you know, that's what you're talking about. You know, and Suzuki Roshi, and that gets kind of us back into Buddhism. He talks about dualism um, as kind of 
a major source of suffering. So, yeah, dividing reality in that way and um, seeing ourselves and this higher power, this angry God um, in this way. I just want to point out, uh, you've probably read Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, right? Yeah. Or heard uh, of it at least, right? Uh, Funny story. That was actually the tract that we passed out on the uh, streets of Scranton uh, as uh, when I was a teenager in the Reformed Church. So that's, you know, that's kind of the, uh, that's kind of the Christianity, the evangelicalism, the, uh, well, Reformed theology that, that all of that preceding kind of Christian thought and practice eventually led to. But I think that's kind of funny that at one point I was handing out sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yeah. <laughs> funny and, and tragic, I well, guess. <laughs> well, let's tie this off in, yeah. in a, a, a way that's really understood. Sure. Too. A, the community's powerful and mm-hmm. there's beautiful people. I'm oh, sure absolutely. you're raised around. It oh, absolutely. We've discussed. Wonderful people. But are they wonderful because of Calvinism? No. In spite of Calvinism, they're wonderful because they have Buddha nature, because at their essence is something good and worthy and compassionate and present in spite of how much religious baggage they pile on top of that. I don't think it ever goes away. So you did. And I certainly did, especially my mother. She's she's someone who um, who I love and someone who. Um, in spite of, I think that kind of theology and practice is a genuinely good person and a compassionate yeah. person. And the churches are are filled with these people. It's, it's sad because the delusion and the ignorance is there. And yet, um, you well, know, like, like nurt- I once it's was nurtured it's, weekly too. Well, well so exactly. That, so you can't yeah, it up. is yeah. nurtured weekly. Yeah. yeah. And it's, um, and, and I'm not talking universally here about Christianity as a whole. I want to no, make no. that clear. This is kind of this form of evangelicalism, Calvinism, but yeah, when you're exposed to that week after week, it almost be kind, it almost becomes a kind of um, cultish thing, right? Um, where, you know, I think there is manipulation. There's an, and there's and, an in group. There's an out. Group. Oh yeah, absolutely. Cults, apostates are punished and they're, yep. it's painful. Even mm-hmm. if you're quietly know that you're being critical now of mm-hmm. things that define the fiber of your community. Mm-hmm. How do you let go of it? You're going to be, mm-hmm. be an outcast. This is this is why people and you're excommunicated from the church too. So I've heard yeah. people and my friends, they're cat, strictly Catholic, mm-hmm. mocking Scientology. I'm like, what do you think? You, right. What do you think you're standing? <laughs> you drink blood, man. <laughs> you drink, right, you're right, drinking right. blood of a, yeah. a carpenter who was Jewish right. that you're calling Christian. Yeah, you're eating what his are you flesh. Talking about yeah. yeah. So right. When did your suffering begin in the midst mm. of this? Like if someone had a point, we, I know you believe in trauma mm. uh, informed base definitions of the rise of addiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, this could, this failed coping mechanism mm-hmm. that becomes this complex response yeah. uh, in connection with an addiction. When did your suffering begin and how did it begin? Well, that's a great question. Um, well, as far back as I can remember, um, and I think this has probably a lot to do with what we just talked about, I um, I always remember having this inherent sense of just self-hatred. I never loved myself, never could accept myself. And um, again, we just talked about it. You sit in church week after week, you're told that God hates you. Uh, that's going to 
have an effect, I think, upon your psyche, upon your self-concept. Um, so from a very early age, I was afraid of the world, I would say. Um, I was afraid of myself. Um, and that became just even more pronounced in my teenage years. I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease um, at the age of 16, um, along with some other health issues, liver problems, which um, we'll get into. But um, uh, we talk if we do talk about my story and addiction, kind of how that played out uh, and how that affected it. But I began really suffering, I think, psychologically with this kind of underlying sense of just self-hatred, this fear, this discomfort. Um, this discontentment, which is really what the Buddha defines as suffering, right? Just um, discontentment, dissatisfaction, um, this uh, sense of, of underlying just frustration, which these illnesses only kind of compounded. Um, but And this is pre-addiction. This is getting right up, in, right, right up to about where the addiction began in my teenage years, 15, 16 years old. Yeah, so running parallel, interestingly, to my theological and religious journey, um, because around this time, I, be, I actually became more interested in the church and more interested in actually spending my life in Christian ministry. Um, so running parallel to all this, Crohn's disease, liver problems, this kind of religious evolution, spiritual evolution, um, wanting to become a minister was this very self-destructive addiction, um, which I basically hid, uh, from everyone, uh, for a long time too, yeah. because I lived two different lives. One life as Jordan Harris, minister of the gospel, right? Uh, one life as Jordan Harris, um, right. Snorting pills and, uh, eating Xanax and drinking myself into oblivion. Was so, there two sets of friends involved in this no. or just, this is it was isolation, isolation, pure isolation. Oh, God. Yeah. That's I mean, a, at first, sounds scary, um, man. yeah, it really was. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think just the pain of that isolation, that disconnection, what the Buddha calls this sense of separateness, right. Out of that just emerged a tidal wave of suffering, um, in my own life. Uh, and yeah, we can talk about that kind of the addiction story. I do. Too, but I like that's, that's kind of where a lot of this really just intense, profound, just dissatisfaction with life, alienation, um, felt just kind of alienation. That's where it really just kind of started to begin. Um, Bef for sure. Uh, I want to pause kind of in that area it, mm -hmm. before you found a drug of your choice, a, sure. dr a drug that bonded. It made mm -hmm. sense. This is really, what did you think was wrong? And did it, did it go to the heart of you? You're not faithful enough. You're not mm -hmm. practicing. I'm, I'm like, did you think there was any uh, way that a faithful person should be able to mm -hmm. experience pleasure or at least contentment? Mm -hmm. And did you think you were, was something missing in your faith that was blocking you from having an enjoyable life? Like, well, yeah. how, did, how did you reconcile that before Good you used question. drugs? Yeah. Well, my faith pretty much consisted of um, knowledge. Uh, so I, as a Christian, was very interested in the theological and philosophical components of Christianity. Um, and, and you did this undergrad just to know, and you have a master's in right, divinity. Right. Yes. Um, so I love that aspect of it. That took my mind off of the distractions, um, the sufferings, the pain. I just loved 
reading. I loved studying. I loved um, learning new things. Um, I never felt that Christian practice was very powerful in my life to create any kind of felt sense of peace or joy. Um, You know, there were moments, but for me, my religion, my spirituality was it was pretty much purely intellectual um, for a long time. I mean, again, there were those uh, practical components, but um, yeah, I filled my head with knowledge and my heart was essentially starved uh, mm. uh, and just longing for something more without even realizing it. So yeah, I think knowledge and interestingly enough, because you know, the Calvinism we were just talking about is so nonsensical and irrational. So, you know, that became kind of the, um, the obsession, you know, the study of, you know, the scholastics and, and the ancient theologians and the fathers. I, I love uh, Greek and Hebrew and Latin, right? College um, languages were a big kind of part of, of my, my early education. So I really threw myself into that part of it. Um, but as I look back, uh, even today, like I don't see much practically uh, coming out of that as I gave myself more and more to this kind of life and way of thinking. I saw my life um, and my soul, my spirit just fracture and uh, suffer more. Um, yeah. And I think that's because um, I didn't have any kind of spiritual practice, which uh, helped liberate me from the pain and the suffering that I was experiencing at the time. I found that subsequently in Eastern thought and in Buddhism, but in Christianity, I, I never did. That's not to say that there aren't those who sure. do not profit from Christian practice. Um, yeah. I but, think, I think um, I'm hoping that it's understood. Yeah. That, that's your position. Um, so yeah. you're on a crash course mm-hmm. for something that could be relieving to yeah. this, this, lack of intimacy, this view perspective on yourself, which a lot of addicts, myself included, can have. Mm -hmm. What takes it away in the most meaningful way? How did you, how did you give birth or it's not even to you? How did, Mm -hmm. how did an addiction make sense to you? When Mm -hmm. did it give you relief? Wow. Yeah. Um, well it began through, uh, uh, opioid pain medications, which were kind of thrown at me from an early age because I had so many illnesses. So it started with physical pain, I think, because what's Crohn's disease. So Crohn's disease is a gastrointestinal disorder. It's an autoimmune disease, which affects the gut. Um, so, uh, symptoms include, um, severe abdominal pain, cramping, um, profuse diarrhea, you know, having no control, you know, I had to have surgery to take out the majority of my large intestine to actually somewhat fix what was going on in there. So it's, um, it's ulcerative colitis is, is similar, right? It's the inflammation of all this stuff down there. Um, and when they did you, surgery on me, they said, you know, they hadn't seen a case that was this way. It was oh just, God. it was, it was just bloody guts, you know no, I mean? So you, that's kind of what it was. It, it, it made, it turned me into, um, what's the word? Uh, it, the, the, can't blanking here. The person who can't get out of the house. Um, agoraphobe. Yeah. It turned me into an agoraphobe. Yeah, basically. Um, so I isolated for a number of years in high school, didn't have friends, didn't really have connections, um, was really homebound and, and had access to pain medications. Do do, do you just subscribe to any ideas, say like a mm -hmm. or 
the trauma, when the yeah. body says no, do, do you think there's an emotional or a relationship to, oh, absolutely. Yeah. to like, this condition is just being internalized trauma? Yeah. Um, you mean infl- from the, from, from the Crohn's or? Infl- yeah. Diseases of inflammation, which yeah. are most, you know, I guess oh, you could right, say right, all right. diseases. Yeah. But do you subscribe to, mm-hmm. there's an emotional component oh, right. that it can cause yes. disease? I, I agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. And Gabor Mate does a lot with that. I think he shows how brain and body are intimately connected. Yeah. And the release of cortisol in the brain ends up, oh yeah, just affecting everything. Um, yeah. And Crohn's is actually a disease that Gabor Mate talks about as quite possibly maybe even originally coming out of just this stressful, traumatic culture, traumatizing culture that we live in, um, right? All of the stress and, and the division and the strife and the warfare and the trauma um, contributes to illnesses like this. So yes, I, I do hold to okay. that view. Yeah, absolutely. Anyone interested, the book, uh, both yeah. of us are references when the body says no. Yeah, wonderful book. And uh, he dedicates a, a portion about inflammation, yeah. uh, diseases of inflammation and generational trauma, which yeah. he, he widely uh, specifically yes. defines what that means. Yes. The myth of normal is, is great too. I think it was one of his more recent ones. Yeah, I didn't um, finish it. It's yeah. A- yeah. He talks a little bit about that as well. Just the, the cultural implications of um, trauma, stress, you know, all those things. Uh, so to get back to the kind of linear narrative, Jordan, you, you're yeah. introduced at an early age to yep. pain relief, yeah. pharmaceutical pain relief. Mm-hmm. When did it become euphoria? I think, I think it probably did from the beginning. I think I was trying to solve, uh, anesthetize emotional pain, right? Because as we had talked about, there's all that stuff from childhood. I think I already hated myself. Um, I already was kind of alienated and divided against myself. And so I think that it became, um, inseparable from the, uh, from the, the physical, or I really actually think that like physically, um, you know, pain, man, opioid pain med- medications as, as kind of, a um, an analgesic for physical pain. I mean, that was part of it, but I think the emotional component was, was probably the more significant one. Um, the, the more significant thing there. Yeah, for right. sure. So yeah, just, um, right. Using these drugs because the pain of separateness was just too intolerable. Um, this pain of self alienation was just too intolerable. And that, that only, I think progressed as I continued on in, in my, in my using, it is a progressive, um, phenomenon. How how long did this addiction last afterwards, after the first introduction? How many, how many uh, years was this going on for? So I, uh, let's see here. I use, I think, uh, see first time, 15 years old. Um, I used pretty steadily consistently right up until, um, just a few years ago. So my early thirties, um, yeah, it was, uh, what brought it to an end? Like, wow. Yeah. What brought it to an end? Um, well, there was, there was an incident, an event kind of that brought it to an end. My children, found me slumped over, uh, my toilet passed out on Xanax. Um, I think I had been snorting Vicodin that night, uh, drinking, um, basically wanting to get as close to death as possible without dying. That's why I love downers. You were doing an experiment. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. If I could be unconscious, if I could black out, right. People usually don't use Xanax because they black out. Right. I liked that part of it. I didn't really want to live anymore, but I was too, 
um, afraid to actually, you know, go through with it myself or do anything like that. Um, but my children found me and I remember just the horror, um, and the pain and the sadness in their faces, in their eyes. Um, so that was when I woke up just to how I was destroying myself, um, in a very profound, powerful, uh, way. Um, I had alienated myself from my family, from my children. Um, I had gone through a very toxic and difficult divorce in 2015. I was married for seven years. So talk about trauma, um, that kind of just contributed to, um, I think some of the suffering in my life, we moved from Philly where I was going to seminary and living with my wife back here to Scranton. I moved in with my parents, um, you know, began raising two kids by myself with the help of my mom. It was very difficult. My addiction 2015, 2016 got really bad around that time. And, uh, yeah, I just continued to devolve until that night where that I just talked about. And my mother helped me, uh, find some, uh, rehabs to kind of look into. I, didn't know what Brookdale was. I had never heard of it, um, but it looked like a nice place. So I called them up and they were wonderful. They got me in. Um, and that was, I think, the beginning of my transformation um, from uh, sad, suffering, traumatized, um, separate, divided, alienated individual, just dissatisfied with life into someone who. Um, began enjoying and loving life again. I never thought it was possible, but it came about. And uh, I attribute that to a number of things, but the people at Brookdale were instrumental in helping me recover. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was a, a number of years ago, a few years ago. And um, since then um, I've been uh, progressing, I guess, evolving in my spiritual journey and my um, uh, pursuit of, um, spiritual practice, um, my interest in Buddhism, uh, my, my counseling career, um, my interest in um, psychotherapy, those kinds of things. All of this just within the last few years have um, all of this has kind of be begun happening in the, la in the last few years. So yeah. if you had to pick a portion of that solution, you had a mm -hmm. clinical experience at Brookdale, mm -hmm. you are very well versed in, um, a theological intellectual mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um would you call the solution still in the realm of spirit would it would be spiritual spiritual being that it's also including the idea of this transient personality a mm -hmm. temporal space what do you call spiritual mm -hmm. transition of recovery today how, how did that right yeah so talking about spirituality, I actually like to go to the big book. I like to go to on spiritual experience, um, the appendices in that book, because it's explained in such just a uh, simple way. So spirituality for me is not about religion. It's not about God. It can be if you want it to be. Um, but spirituality is fundamentally about connection, first of all, right? And the Buddha says that our suffering arises out of the sense of separateness, out of the sense of self, out of the sense of ego, Right. So what is the um, what's the solution to that? It's connection. Right. And I learned in Brookdale, right. Uh, kind of that uh, that phrase, that cliche, I guess. But it's true. I, I like it. Uh, the opposite of addiction being connection. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah, connection and transformation. And uh, 
on spiritual experience in the big book, they talk about this, the educational variety of spiritual experience, which is more slow and progressive, right? Dr. Bob's kind of experience. He talks about craving liquor for two years in his story. Um, Bill Wilson has kind of this mountaintop momentous change. He still struggles, right? With depression and PTSD and those kinds of things. But his addiction to alcohol is almost kind of just changed in a moment in a very significant and powerful way. So two kinds of religious experiences. Mine was more kind of slow ed- educational, but there was also kind of that um, immediate uh, nature to it as well, just going into Brookdale. But yeah, I th- connection and transformation, um, you know, for me, that is, it's not so much connection to a personal God. It, it's connection to uh, and grounding in the present moment. It's um, seeing suffering for what it is, seeing myself for who I am as but one piece connected to the larger whole um, and growing out of that, transforming out of that sense of connection, out of that sense of um, relation. Interbeing is what Thich Nhat Hanh calls it, right? So, Interbeing. Um, yeah, interbeing. So nothing can exist. Um, and nothing exists on its own. The Buddha says after his enlightenment yeah. that if this exists, that must exist, right? So, Or, or we're rendering our own reality. Like yeah. what kind of horror story right. would that be? <laughs> right. So you look at this piece of paper and Thich Nhat Hanh says, can you see the cloud and the sunshine in this piece of paper? And on the surface, no. But, you know, when you really look deeply into it, you see the sunshine, right? That's necessary for the trees to grow and for this paper to become what it is. You see the clouds in this piece of paper, right? The rain that causes the trees to grow and all of it, right? Made up of non-paper elements, yet still here's this piece of paper, right? Mm. So interbeing, interconnection, my sense of oneness with the whole of reality, which I think is a sounder, at least for me, um, yeah. and um, uh, more workable kind of version of spirituality than some of the um, spiritual practices that I had been exposed to in the past. So, yeah. Oh, I'd like to uh, maybe just summarize some some stuff we've been sure, talking about sure. before i would like to make a transition for yeah. the last portion of this sure. start talking about sure. darn. but the summary take christianity or any kind of labels aside i mm-hmm. i like looking at the brain just in the terms of using different words so it's just right. a little more concrete you can see the input the brain mm-hmm. it's a hard drive mm-hmm the brain has a couple choices for cultural perspective before it's a, you download it yeah. or it's given to you. It's a forced download and it comes with viruses, mm. um, failed logical understandings of the world, science, psychology. And sometimes this predominantly comes in the form of a religion mm-hmm. downloads. This could cause a lot of physical problems to that hard drive. Mm. Yes. <laughs> they can manifest throughout the whole body. Mm-hmm. And it gives someone this illusion against a whole whole truth that you're disconnected. Mm. There's me subject and other, uh, there's a separation of the world as if there's a soul that operates in my brain separate from my experience. This, this could cause, it could double suffering Mm. like that. There is some other sense of self that's behind my face. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, yeah. And I'm not the full body, just experience of what's emerging. No. I have to do nothing to cause reality, but, but somehow it's a religion. will tell you it's all in your hands. And however this goes, mm-hmm. you're going to, you, you're, 
you're stationary and stuck with how this life goes forever. Right. What the yeah. fuck kind of yeah. way is that to yeah. think? Like, sure, sure. So this could cause a lot of pain. Yeah. And I think addiction, um, and I think it seems clear, mm-hmm. I don't want to be arrogant, no. that civilization and culture cause addiction. I mm-hmm. don't think hunter-gatherers were really suffering too much from mm-hmm. the, the, the pining. That's a great of, point. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so when people group together, we lose control. Yeah of the sense of someone has to make my bread. He's the bread maker. Mm-hmm. What if I'm alone? I don't know how to make bread. I don't know how to defend myself. I'm not a soldier. I don't know how to, um, you know, weld. I don't know mm-hmm. how to get alone. This, this is all separated from my independence of taking care of myself. This, this is going to cause a lot of problems for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And addiction is a great solution to this, right? This anxiety. Yeah. This, 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 I guess, disregard of the truth that we are a whole and connected. Mm. We we're on the same planet. We came from these, the same mud. Mm-hmm. I think addiction is needs to be tackled existentially. Some people yeah. always tell me, "Oh, your lecture." Uh, the, 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 you, I tell them about our lectures. They're like, mm-hmm. "Oh, that's too highbrow for a right. beginning." Too I'm intellectual. Like, yeah. yeah, tell me how many people you ignored mm-hmm. that you're not keeping track of that sure. you didn't give that lecture to. Right. I'm not having that experience. People want that to discuss this. This is where addiction could be confronted. Um, You, your story does that. And I think most stories I hear do that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The connection is just like this. So this, this, this relief Mm. that it, the charge is on my shoulders Mm. um, or that I'm alone Mm. uh, or that someone needs to be in my brain to have my experience. This is just, yeah. What an exhausting right. game it to, is. to make you feel alone. It is. Yeah. How did you, how did you vibrate? How did you connect? How did you get drawn to recovery Dharma? Yeah. Great question. Um, so interestingly in treatment, I really wasn't interested in mindfulness. I remember the lady who led the mindfulness and meditation classes and I, just kind of impatient throughout the whole thing. I didn't really like it. Um, didn't really understand it, I guess. Coming out of Brookdale, uh, I did a lot of AA. Uh, and that's how I got sober, through the 12 steps. And I am indebted to AA and to the 12 steps in helping me get sober. I liked the spirituality of AA. I liked the spirituality of the program. What a lot of people don't understand, though, is that the spirituality of, uh, of AA is, is more of kind of a Western-oriented spirituality that's rooted um, in Christianity and kind of uh, generic kind of Protestantism, the Oxford movement, um, which is not to say anything against it. Uh, it has its own kind of distinguishing, you know, and unique features. I liked that spirituality. Um, what do you think it is? You, yeah. I absolutely agree. It's obvious. Mm-hmm. But what do you, isn't it wild that they use the word awakening? It is. Yes. I mean that, that. And I think Bill Wilson was ahead of his time in so many respects, really. I mean, before the explosion of mindfulness in the West, you have Bill Wilson talking yeah. about meditation, yeah. right? Daily. And yeah. Do it twice a day. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and I love Bill Wilson and I think he was um, a genius of sorts who uh, was just remarkably ahead of his time in a lot of ways. So I loved that aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, You know, the prayer, the theism, you know, some of that stuff. I was kind of gradually coming out of that. And I 
discovered through a counselor that there was this recovery program that um, uh, emphasized kind of mindfulness and meditation and Buddhist uh, practice as, you know, what, what was central about, about their program, using Buddhism to help um, individuals overcome uh, addiction. So, you know, I, I was interested in that because, again, I had kind of grown dissatisfied with, you know, this this kind of spirituality I was trying to, you know, put together uh, from scratch, really, because at that point I had kind of abandoned the 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 religious and theological baggage of the past after Brook, Brookdale, post Brookdale. So I was like, okay, recovery dharma. This sounds cool. I started kind of reading about it. I, I knew about Buddhism because I had studied world religions, um, Hinduism, Eastern thought. So that was always an interest of mine. I was always more kind of focused on, um, you know, Western scholarship, but the East was always an area that I wanted to kind of study. So I started reading some books, um, guys like Thich Nhat Hanh, guys like Jack Kornfield, who we talked about, um, uh, individuals, women like Tara Brock, um, Ramdas, who's more of kind of an Eastern spiritualist, uh, with, with a lot of just Buddhism there as well, but, uh, started really just kind of voraciously reading these guys and attending online meetings of recovery Dharma. That's kind of how I got started. Recovery Dharma has had, um, from its beginning in 2019, a very strong online presence. And I would encourage anyone interested to go to the recovery Dharma website. And if you're interested in just seeing what it's all about, you can hop on a meeting. They have them at any time, but that's kind of how I got started with it. I started attending online meetings. I started reading, um, the recovery Dharma text, which they put out in 2019 and they just updated actually. Um, it's a great update. I just read through some of it last night in preparation for this, but they put out that text. Um, and, uh, yeah, slowly I, um, began incorporating mindfulness and meditation into my practice and seeing the fruits of it, right. Seeing myself transform, seeing, uh, myself able to just let some of these things go that I never had been able to let go of before, because again, this was a different kind of spirituality. It was a more indirect mystical, uh, non-Western precognitive kind of spirituality, which really focused on the here and now, right? The lived experience of um, awakening in the here and now. I loved that. And it transformed me. And I started a meeting. I began when, seeing the fruits of recovery dharma in my own life. I uh, began really just getting passionate about it. So I was counseling at a facility uh, here a few years ago, and I started a meeting there. Um, people started attending it. Uh, people started seeing their lives change through mindfulness and meditation. Um, so uh, really, it's been a few years now I've been doing recovery Dharma, and that has become for me really central to my practice um, of recovery. I still do AA. Um, I helped create uh, an AA meeting at, at a previous facility, but I, I love uh, and, I, and I still attend AA meetings today, but I, I, I love recovery Dharma. And that for me is kind of central to at least my journey. Um, yeah. Uh, how many people in the population that comes to your mm -hmm. meeting? Sure. And for listeners that meeting, if you're from Scranton or Lackawanna County, that's Friday nights at seven thirty. Yeah, it's at fifteen fifty four Sanderson Avenue. Yes, um, that'll be Recovery Dharma. It's an hour. Yeah. But how many people are in A that attend the meeting? Yeah, if you um, had to shoot, throw a dart at the wall, probably most of them. I most, would say over uh, two thirds. Yeah, for sure. Oh, for, for sure. sure. Yeah, I've right. gone to Recovery Dharma prior mm -hmm. to meeting you, and I connected. I was mm -hmm. going to Refuge Recovery yes. too. 
So anyone who's listening, so it started. There's, yeah, there's refuge started first, and there was a little offshoot and yeah. a faction break. But I go to Recovery Dharma. Mm-hmm. I love their their book. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of similarities. So, mm-hmm. like for the Western idea, they, these are the similarities. There are exercises. You mm-hmm. are still taking an inventory, yeah. confronting things. You're making amends. Mm-hmm. But there's a real specific lens to how to approach life and why it's sacred. And it doesn't involve um, monoth- like monotheism. Right. It doesn't involve, you know, Bill's innovative way to say the God of your own understanding. It kind right. of skirts that a little to the, just this open idea. So I want to ask you maybe just some really sure. tangible questions. Sure. What is Dharma? So Dharma... Uh, has been translated in a number of ways, um, truth, uh, teaching, phenomena. Um, Dharma in recovery, Dharma is specifically referring to um, the group of teachings uh, that we use um, as a tool in overcoming our addictions and our attachments. So specifically, Dharma in recovery, Dharma is the four noble truths of Buddhism and the eightfold noble path. That's really the essence. Um, so what order do they come in? How do you like, mm-hmm. so if someone just took a, a brief synopsis or understood Buddhism and they could mm-hmm. say those two things, four noble truths, yeah. eightfold path, right? How do they lay on top of each other? Yeah. Do they interwine? Sure. And sure. How is this program using, do you have to be a Buddhist to do this? Right. Great question. Um, I'll answer the last question first. Okay. Absolutely not. No, you do not have to be a Buddhist. Um, you don't have to disavow any kind of theism, <laughs> right? You don't have to stop going to church. You don't have to stop reading your Bible if that's what you do. That's not what I do. But, you know, if you want to... Um, have that kind of spirituality. A lot of people use the practice of Buddhism as a supplement to um, their practice of recovery or spirituality, whatever or that might be. Right? Or Christianity. Yeah. yeah. There are a number of Christians who um, I've met who have profited immensely from Buddhist practice. Thich Nhat Hanh actually wrote a book called Living, Living Buddha, Living Christ, in, in which he talks about um, the intersections between uh, Christianity and Buddhism. So there, there is, there is that. No, one you don't. Quick, one quick interjection. There was always that uh, quote Gandhi had. He goes, yeah. I would have been a Christian, but I met too many. Of oh, them. right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think there's a reason for that too. I do. And that's a different discussion, but yeah. Um, so how do these two concepts, right, they're, they're, right. the, they're the two major morsels yes. of what you would say Buddhism is. Right. And Buddhism rose out of, Hinduism, yes. I guess, to oversimplify. Yes. Uh, Alan Watts always said, uh, Buddhism is Hinduism for export. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you have the two huge ideas. Yeah. How does one even look at these two chunks for no, and apply mm-hmm. them towards a recovery program? Sure. Um, so the Four Noble Truths of, of Buddhism, just to kind of give a little bit of a background. So the Buddha, right, he's... Uh, He's raised in wealth, uh, the story goes, allegedly. He's raised in privilege. Um, he's still dissatisfied, senses that there's this suffering that exists um, in spite of the wealth and the pleasure that he experiences growing up. Um, he leaves his family at the age of 29, the story goes. He becomes a wandering ascetic. Um, and that day, uh, Vedism, which had kind of morphed into Hinduism, um, in that 
religion, the predominant form of spirituality was ascetic spirituality. So punish the body, purify the spirit. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And the Buddha uh, thought initially that that might be a way to kind of rid ourselves from this suffering. The Buddha was on a quest. He was on a quest to find um, an answer to the problem of suffering, um, a way to transform suffering, um, an experience of maybe we might say the cessation of suffering. So that was kind of his um, initial thought. Maybe I'll be hard on my body. He joined this kind of group of wandering ascetics. Uh, But one night he meditates under a tree. Um, The next day uh, he says he's enlightened. And he says that these four noble truths along with the eightfold path are, you know, kind of at the core of what was, uh, I guess what he was enlightened to. So the four noble truths I would say are descriptive. They describe um, reality as it is, uh, the eightfold path, I would say is more prescriptive, right? The eightfold path gives us, um, a path that leads to the end of suffering. So the eightfold path is what the Buddha found. It's the tool that, um, he uses or used, I should say, to free himself, um, from the, the suffering, but, but the, but the four noble truths kind of start with the description of what reality is and why uh, we need kind of freedom from this stuff. Maya. Um, yeah. The Maya, the, yeah. The, 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 the illusion, the real reality. So he describes reality, or you could say he's giving you the terms of the illusion. Right. These are the four noble truths. Here's right. the game, right? Here's the game. This the, is what the it is. Foundations yeah. of the game of reality. You can't yeah. change. And now the eightfold path is, mm-hmm. I believe he believed the best mm-hmm. way to navigate through yeah. this game. Yes. And not get, uh, just have unintelligent suffering, dumb suffering. It's not (laughs) suffering goes away. Right. Um, And that's a great point too. It's not the annihilation of suffering. It's the transformation of suffering. So unlike Christianity, which has this kind of get back to that, the eschatological emphasis, right? Um, This kind of perfection, this paradise that we're all working towards. The Buddha says, no, there's no state in which suffering doesn't exist, but we can transcend it. We can transform it. We can live without suffering, defining who we are. Or panicking and needing pleasure to be be the cure. Yeah. To anesthetize. Yeah. The pain of the suffering. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Let's go through a couple things. And then I have have a couple of questions that I definitely want to. Yeah. So he, he comes to these terms. What are the four noble truths? So the four noble truths, um, do you want me to give you the recovery Dharma version or kind of my version? Uh, I'll do both. How, how about yeah. I do both? Yeah. So the four noble truths, um, recovery Dharma, um, and, and you'll find just different translations, maybe um, phrase it a little bit differently, but uh, in this life, there is suffering, the truth of suffering. That's, that's the first noble truth. Um, and in recovery Dharma, we do these readings before every meeting. We also, as we read this, um, add that we commit to understanding the truth of suffering. So suffering is a noble truth, Thich Nhat Hanh says. It's a holy truth because when we look deeply into our suffering, and the Buddha did this, we see the path towards enlightenment. So if suffering exists, right? opposites, there's dialectic here, then its opposite must exist. Well-being must exist. So included within the first noble truth is um, the answer, the path. Uh, And that's why it's so important. We look deeply into our suffering. We identify the causes of our suffering and we um, 
commit to the path, which leads to the end of suffering. But that's the first one, right? That's uh, the first there's suffering. Truth. Yeah. And that's dissatisfaction. That's it's acknowledged. Um, it's uh, now in the, the, this one, before we go to two, Duka, yeah. would it be similar to say someone's idea that the foundation to, to step one and yes. say, a that there's very, suffering. Very good. Yeah. Is there any, ownership that has to be subscribed to? Am I causing the suffering or is right. the reality just has suffering? This Where does agency get involved right. in the first noble truth? Um, <laughs> yeah, great question. I think agency um, comes in more probably with the second noble truth and okay. the causes of suffering. But I think this is more, at least as I see it, descriptive of what reality is as a whole, right? This sense of frustration. I, I shouldn't say reality as a, it's, it's our felt experience in this world as human beings. Um, Thirst, with this, hunger, yes, pain, exactly. the wandering mind, yes. desire, right? Okay. All of those Sickness, things. Sickness, so decline, death. This is how it is, right? Um, right. Uh, it's, uh, it's how it is. And I think it's somewhat similar to kind of step one, right? We're we we are admitting something, right? We're we're coming to terms with something. We're being honest about something. You're but admitting two things essentially: right. a the suffering's real, yeah, and the way I tried to solve it isn't working. This right. is a real panic attack. Yeah, like yeah. If you're really taking step one, you're making the admission that my solution doesn't work anymore. Right. And, right. And it, absolutely, it, it might have been working right. for some time. Right. Right. So it's all an illusion. Mm. Everything I'm doing to relieve myself of this suffering, right. not only isn't working anymore, um, it's all based in an illusion. So where does this put me? I don't know where it, reality even begins. Mm -hmm. That's kind of, I guess, yeah. I, my perception of yeah. step one versus the first noble truth. Right, 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 right. Yeah. More of an emphasis, would you say, on like the agency there on... Uh, yeah, I guess there's agency in the discovery, but like, what are you discovering right. except what's already happening? What's happening? Yeah, I, didn't sure. I don't know if I caused it. Right. I just know I woke up. There's a new sense of understanding that, oh my God, is everything mm. I'm believing false? Mm. Like, where does this end? Right, right, right. Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I think this is, it's just a great, I think, common sense, just very simple description of reality right uh, in this life there is suffering it should be it should be pointed out yeah um some translations and some buddhists will even say uh that the first noble truth is um that life is suffering um again i hate to reference Thich Nhat Hanh. i read him so much but he so says that's how do you inaccurate feel about that it's inaccurate he says right because with yeah, the first noble truth is not saying right that everything is suffering no. or that all is suffering um, but that in this life, um, there is this sense of frustration, the sense of suffering, the sense of pain, the sense of longing and desire. Um, the Buddha is not denying joy. He's not denying our capacity for experiencing profound joy. Um, he's saying that there is this underlying suffering that um, is uh, the way things are um, based on our experience as humans in this, in this world. But yeah, it's a great description of, of reality and helped me to kind of come to terms just with a lot of different things in my own life. Yeah. So the first noble truth, um, you want to move on to the second? Yeah. You got any more questions? No, no, that's good. no it's, I, a, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's an important and foundational one. It really it's hard is. not um, to pick uh, yeah. and want to 
talk about each look. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah, yeah, yeah. The ideas are simple, but they're so simple. They put everything yes. that you could consider into them. Like, yeah. I don't know yeah. how else to describe yeah, it. It's, it's a like, great way of putting it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so the second noble truth, um, there's a cause of suffering, right? So suffering exists. Um, what causes suffering? Uh, in recovery Dharma, the word that's used is craving. Um, you'll find in different translations, different words used. Craving was actually uh, in the ancient Buddhist scriptures, um, in the ancient Buddhist texts. It was one of many causes of suffering. Uh, it was often put at the beginning of the list. So a lot of Buddhists have kind of identified craving as the sole cause of suffering. I um, tend to take a slightly different view. I think craving surely is a cause of, of suffering, but craving arises out of this more fundamental sense of alienation and separateness. Um, so suffering, the cause of suffering, um, civilization. Uh, yeah. Civilization no, it precedes what precedes the right. craving and right. ideas, cognition, yeah. ignorance, uh, delusion, um, suffering could, you could starve to death if you were mindless, like right. or, or a mammal, like say, um, homo erectus, right. Get, it's getting close to being us. Yeah. And if one of them starved to death, it's that's suffering, but it's yeah. not the, the cognitive suffering uh, and the shame that comes with death, right. like that's a different kind of sure. being a sh so filled with shame. You die. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, different I, kinds. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. Um, yeah, I guess I'm just mumbling on. But yeah. That's bad. But this sense, yeah, out of this sense of separateness, out of this, this sense of I, and in Buddhism, there's this, this doctrine, this teaching called anatta or no self. Um, and it's kind of wild maybe to individuals who encounter it at first, but it's basically this teaching that there is no I, there is no soul, there is no subject, there is no me, right? I am something much more than what my deluded mind tells me I am. Is that right? the hardest part of, I think any critical thinker, and I still, mm -hmm. I have a hard time. Mm -hmm. I know that what it feels like to experience mm -hmm. the sense of I fall away, fall away. Mm -hmm. But if you approach me 10 years ago, mm -hmm. I understand I've heard this language before, right. but right. what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> like it, it almost makes sense. And I'm just going to acquiesce yeah. and listen to someone. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, sure. Do you find that is the greatest struggle, maybe even with yourself right. or with another individual who is a seeker is trying to get out of addiction? Mm-hmm. This has to be the hardest part of Eastern philosophy to, to teach because you can maybe intellectually start to grasp an idea, but it's not understood until it's experienced. Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. You don't, you don't understand it fully until you experience it. And that's why I think this is, it's a mystical way. It's an experiential way. It's an indirect way. This is not, so much the way of reason and logic, it's the way of experience. So I really didn't know what this anada, no self stuff was all about until it I experienced. sounds like communism to me. I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, it's this felt experience of oneness and meditation that I think really seals for you the, the truth that uh, we are more than what we think we are. Um, if I could just read really quickly, I've got, I think here it's a, uh, yes, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, a quote from Suzuki Roshi. He's a Zen master who came over to the U S and taught Zen Buddhism, but 
he talks in Zen Buddhism's Japanese yes, uh, yes. Japanese lens and yes little distinctions yes. of Buddhism from Japan. Yes, yes. Sorry about okay. that. Um, yes, uh, Zen Buddhism. There's two kind of schools, ma- majors. There's a number of Buddhist schools, but the two major ones, um, the the ones most known are the Theravada Buddhist, uh, the Theravada uh, Buddhists, who are kind of the OG Buddhists, right? Uh, Sri Lanka. Um, places like Thailand, uh, Jack Cornfield, interestingly studied sure. with Ajahn Chah, who was Theravada, um, the OG Buddhists and they're the, the Mahayana, um, uh, Buddhists, uh, Zen Buddhism, some Tibetan Buddhism, right. There's an emphasis more on the individual practitioner and, um, Japanese and, is the newest school being a couple of, you know, maybe it's a, in, in the, the terms of thousands, right, of, thousands years of years old, right. But it's the newer school. Yeah. It's Buddhism. the newer school. Yeah, of Buddhism. Yeah. yeah, it really is. But, um, but uh, where were we? I we were Suzuki. So Suzuki, Suzuki Roshi, yes. A, yeah. So he says this, um, and this is kind of, I think, getting to this this whole thing. He says, uh, the meditation posture, he's talking about the lotus position, interestingly enough, but he says that the full lotus position, um, which is a, a position that, that we can take in meditation, it illustrates for us the nature of reality. So the position expresses the oneness of duality, right? Not two and not one. This is the most important teaching, not two and not one. Our body and mind are not two and not one. If you think your body and mind are two, that is wrong. If you think they are one, that is also wrong. Our body and mind are both two and one. That's important. We usually think that if something is not one, it is more than one. If it's not singular, it is plural. But in actual experience, our life is not only plural, but also singular. Each one of us is both dependent and independent, right? So there is this sense of individuality, I think. Um, there's this sense of experience that we have. There's this sense of um, duality, right? This kind of subject versus object, this me uh, versus you. But within that distinction is this foundational and fundamental oneness that almost kind of um, informs and uh I don't even know what a word for it might be, but there's this sense of oneness that almost envelops this, this distinction. Right. And that what he's talking about is what and who we are, right. There's this sense of individuality. Yes. I'm a person. You're a person we're talking, but behind this sense of distinction is oneness. Uh, who are we? What are we? Uh, we are the universe in miniature form, according to Buddhism. Right. So um, in that sense, there is no self, Right. In that, you know, we're not this self-isolated soul um, cut off from the rest of reality. We live as individuals, right? I don't think I'm going to literally deny the, the the existence of, right, the individual mind and yeah. you know, things like that. But w- within this distinction, there's this oneness, there's this connection to everything um, yeah. that uh, I think is really at the heart of kind of the no self doctrine. So um, it's, it's not so much that like, you know, you don't exist, you know, in kind of some weird, um, you know, philosophical way. It's, it's a sense of oneness and, and it's resting in that oneness. It's, it's, it's hard to explain. It is. It is. We're both fans of Sam Harris mm-hmm. and um, I use his app often and I heard him say, and th- this kind of resounded to me too, sure. because I, I've had the sense of of oneness. I don't want to say in the shallow sense, the mm-hmm. first layer surface sense when you 
when I say would smoke pot as a teenager, mm-hmm. when I would use yeah. psychedelics, right? the bottom would fall out of, how do you separate, like, how does a hundred exist if the, the number 67 did it? Mm-hmm. Like, can you get to a hundred? Like, there's not, it's not so much oneness he always wants to say, and I, mm-hmm. I feel the oneness. Right, right. He's trying to describe it as non-separation. Mm, I like that. Yeah. And that caught me for a second. Like, if we're oneness, you know, I couldn't find what you just said earlier, right. individuality. That that would scare me a little bit. Like, right. where does Joe get to fit in? Right, right, right. <laughs> sure. sure. And it's hard to explain. It is. It's really hard to explain. And I always I like feel like thing. I'm uh, tripping when I'm trying to tell someone mm-hmm. so, with a sober mind, mm-hmm. we're all one, baby. Like, right. <laughs> and like the, right. But how can it not be true? How can right. my story be isolated from the universe? Right. So if the opposite was true, let, let's consider what that means. Mm-hmm. I exist and nothing else does. And somehow I've fundamentally tricked myself from knowing any sources, mm-hmm. any pinpoints of factually how this starts and how it ends. And I'm right. rendering reality to trick myself. Right. right. That's, that's oneness, but that's no other. Right. That means no one else is having an experience. Right. Right. How right. Right. Fucking nightmarish. Yeah, sure. Oh yeah. That's a different kind of <laughs> oneness. Sure. I wanted to kind of sum up, get the other two truths. Yeah. I have a, I have a final thought and question for sure. you. And I, I'm curious because I, I learn a lot from you. Thank and, you. Um, I learn a lot from you too. I'm really course. looking forward to recovery Dharma starting. Yeah. So I think we only give the four noble truths today. And if you want sure. the eightfold path, come to in, recovery Dharma. Yeah. Grab a book. And, uh, and we do these discussions like this uh, and it doesn't take up the whole meeting, but right now, we're reading Mindfulness in Action by Chogyang Trungpa Rinpoche, who is a Tibetan Lama, another American Buddhist who um, has profoundly influenced me. But that book is amazing. And we talk about all of these things, Eightfold Path, Four Noble Truths, No Self. Um, we read a chapter, discuss it, uh, and uh, yeah, see how it applies practically, experientially to our lives. So, How long is the meeting? The meeting's an hour. So it's... Uh, What's it break out to? It's an hour... Um, you mean like, What's what do it we, look like yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh, so similar to kind of AA, we start with some readings, um, four noble truths, eightfold path, uh, the practice, uh, we, um, one kind of unique feature, we don't identify our, ourselves by any kind of particular, um, designation you can, if you want, uh, but in recovery Dharma, right. We're trying to focus more on kind of what's right with us, um, as opposed to kind of what's wrong with us. So, uh, we're free to identify ourselves, uh, by whatever label so we like, we I'm go Joe. around. Yeah, you're Joe. Yeah, yeah. Well, if I wanted to, I'm just so, you know, trained in it. Sure. I'm Joe, I'm an alcoholic. Absolutely. We have a number of people uh, yeah. who do that. And okay. Yeah, and that's that's uh, that's fine. It's 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 whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah. Um. So so we do that. We go around. We introduce ourselves. Um. We do a meditation. Uh. We have uh, a guy, Marcus, who actually taught me meditation. He uh, studied with Chogyang Trungpa Rinpoche wow. and the, uh, the Buddhist in New York city. Um, and he uh, has become a big part of our meeting. He, he leads our guided meditation and he, he teaches Buddhism. Uh, he's a really cool, eccentric, interesting guy. He's got his own podcast. I think he's into like politics and some stuff too. Uh, but um, yeah, cool guy who helps lead our guided meditation. It's about 10, 15 minutes. Um, and then we read some literature either out of the recovery Dharma book. Right now we're reading mindfulness in action. Um, 
I give, you know, just a probably a three to five minute overview of the chapter, you know, clarifying important concepts. And then we just talk. Uh, we process the meditation. We talk about the literature. Sponsorship. Um, How does that work? So there? sponsorship. Yeah. Sponsorship. The uh, recovery Dharma equivalent to sponsorship is mentorship. So it's okay. the same thing. Essentially, sure. uh, the uh, mentor is responsible for taking you through uh, the recovery Dharma literature, um, taking you through the inventories. The inventories um, are questions at the end of um, each truth and each part of the path that kind of help us dig deeper into uh, what they are. So yeah, we do the inventories um, preferably with a mentor, although we've had groups where we do inventory discussion um, and that's cool too. Cause we, we do, we talk about addiction. We talk about trauma. That's one thing I love about recovery Dharma is that it's very trauma focused um, and it uh, takes into account not only the suffering caused by addiction, but the suffering that uh, gives rise to addiction, uh, addiction in the first place. It has a whole section on trauma and attachment injury. That's just wonderful. So it's a great program for people who maybe have some of that trauma, mental health struggles, um, and they're interested in maybe a slightly different version of spirituality in recovery, not just from chemical use. This program is for anyone. So in Buddhism, addiction is a species of attachment. So, um, you can be addicted or attached to family food members, or family, family members, codependent, whatever it might be. So we have uh, people working recovery, Dharma and the eightfold path and the four noble truths around. What are the last two eating, noble truths? Uh, I teased them out so long and yeah. all these different little caveats. Yeah. What the uh, my, right, right mindfulness and right concentration, right? Isn't that the, um, oh, the, oh, I'm sorry. The, the noble truths. I'm, I'm getting into the path already, Joe. I'm getting the way ahead of you. Oh my God. For Friday. We're doing that next time. Yeah. I am so sorry. Uh, yeah. So the four, the last two noble truths, let me get to that. Um, so, uh, there's a way out of suffering, right? Um, there's a way leading to the end of suffering. Wow. Uh, and that kind of parallels that first noble truth, right? Uh, going back to Thich Nhat Hanh, we see in our suffering, the path leading out of suffering. So if suffering exists, it's opposite must also exist yin and yang. This is kind of the opposite. There's a way out of suffering. There's a way to liberate ourselves from the suffering of addiction. Um, again, a little bit different from kind of the theistic emphasis on, you know, maybe a personal God rescuing you, rescuing you out of, you know, your, your problems, your struggles, yeah. your suffering. So it's self-liberation, it's self-empowerment. I, I call it the cosmic self, not the egoic kind of individual self we're talking about yeah. here. This is the universal self. So it's drawing upon that, um, for enlightenment, for freedom, for, liber for for liberation from from suffering. So there's a way out. Um, and Recovery Dharma says we commit to uh, understanding um, that there there is this way out of suffering. Uh, is, it <laughs> <laughs> is it capitalism? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> so that would be an interesting. Discussion. So we got the first three down. What's the last? So uh, the last no the last uh, noble truth is that this way out of suffering or this path leading to the end of suffering is the eightfold noble path. So gotcha. the four noble truths kind of transition right there at the end with the fourth uh, transitions right into the eightfold path. So there's a path leading to the end of suffering, right? That's the specific way out. That's the way the Buddha found and used to free himself from suffering. And that's the path that in recovery this, Dharma, we strive to follow. This path um, looks very similar to 
the, the journey essentially yes. in general it's, of, of the steps yes. of psychoanalytic therapy of cognitive behavioral yes. therapy. It's being a good person, right? Yeah. It's ethical living. That's pay attention and be a good person. Yeah. It's, that's what it is. It, and it's as simple as that, right? Um, stay mindful, be present, cultivate things like compassion, honesty, um, you know, concentration, respect uh, life. Yeah. Respect life. The five precepts don't murder, don't steal, don't use sexual misconduct to hurt other people. How are right? we supposed to have fun? When <laughs> <laughs> but very, again, very common sense. Well, very. I want to end with this. You're mm-hmm. going to be on as a guest and yes. I, you know, I'm really excited and I'm so glad you're yeah. part of the team and yeah. I, I look forward to learning uh, oh, from you. And you. I, I love the way you treat people. I love you. the way you think. Um, I love seeing people I knew who should have became cynics and Mm. and, and drowned in their own cynicism, get sober and approach spirituality because it gives me hope. I'm a cynic. That being said, last question. Yeah. What can you say to the fact that say we're wrong? Mm -hmm. The eightfold path is just this distraction to get Mm. away from suffering. Mm. It's wrong. The real game Mm -hmm is the ego. We just couldn't cut it. You got to get out there and get things. Mm. You have to make generational wealth. Maybe you could do this on the full pet, but I'm saying this mm-hmm. is, this is what I should have focused on and I couldn't cut it. Ego mm. is an expression of the best version of self. Um, mm. I just, uh, the suffering was too much for me to play the ego game. Right. How is that wrong? How do you tell mm. someone that your ego not only can't have this be in charge of having a spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. Why does this fail? Like mm. why, why is the ego not the authentic self? Mm. How, well, yeah. How would you explain that from your, your experiences now of yeah. you seeking the eightfold path as a way to practice your recovery? Sure. Um, so I would say for me, I would hesitate to say that Buddhism is right in the sense of like orthodoxy, you know, in the sense of kind of how I went about viewing religious traditions in the past. So I don't know if there's a right way and a wrong way. Um, I found people who have gravitated more towards a kind of uh, personalized spirituality, which you might even find in something like Hinduism, where there is this spirit, right? There is kind of this Atman, it's more universal, but it's a more kind of concrete sense of self. Um, I don't know if it's the right way as opposed to the wrong way. It's the way that I myself uh, personally have um, benefited from in terms of just finding liberation for, from, from my own addictions, uh, from my own pathologies. I think that if there was an answer, it would be that I found, at least in, again, in my experience, and I think the Buddha found that this sense of ego, this sense of separateness is delusion. And you experience that, right? Yes. When you try to live in that way. And that's, I guess, really my answer. I've tried the egoic way of living and striving and attempting as much as possible to make my kind of mark on existence, life, the world, whatever. But what I found is that the more I give into that, the more I separate myself from what I found to be the essence of reality, the more I suffer. Um, 
the more pain I experience and the more pain I inflict upon others. So yeah, this sense of separateness, this sense of self for me, I've seen it in real time um, develop into something quite monstrous. And so I would say that for me as an individual, I have found liberation through these practices, through the practice of non-attachment, through the practice of mindfulness and meditation. Um, I'm not going to go out and evangelize the world and say that this is the right way for you. This is the right way for you. Uh, and that you have to follow it or you're, you know, going to suffer immeasurably. I think there are multiple ways toward uh, to, to getting maybe at the same place, but I think non-egoic spirituality, um, just on an experiential level for me, uh, just relieves so much suffering that I, I just, I, I don't see any other alternative. Yeah. I've experimented with a kind of, again, uh, personalism that for me brought about suffering, um, you know, this kind of ego, this sense of separate self, um, didn't work for me. Uh, and, um, I think that there are other approaches, which again, maybe in Christianity, I, I know a, a number of Catholics, for instance, um, uh, universalists, um, I know liberal, uh, Protestant the- uh, theologians and Christians who, you know, believe in the soul, you know, maybe believe in the ego, maybe believe in the self. And, um, they're doing the same kind of thing we're doing in terms of the eightfold path. They're trying to live ethically. They're trying to live wisely. Um, they're trying to connect. The language might be a little different. The yeah. anthropology might be a little different. Um, the underlying philosophy might be a little different, but um, we're trying to get kind of to the same place. Uh, that's kind of, I, I guess, as best, uh, yeah. you know, I can kind of answer the, from, from experience. I think, again, Buddhism is very kind of experiential. It's try it, you know. See if it liberates you from from your suffering, and um, if it does, it's a path which uh, can lead to profound joy and liberation just from um, you know the suffering, especially of addiction. Right, trying to just anesthetize this this pain of separateness. That it's 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 not you can't accomplish it. You said yeah. a word right, and your answer was delusion and yeah. delusions of you know it's a it's a mini psychosis. Yeah. Um, that that spell is what's broken, I think, by is. letting ego. You don't have to defend me anymore, right? Like you did a great job, but now you right. get me in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And disconnection rises from this. Yeah, someone can't have intimacy with my ego, right? They can only have right. intimacy with the self or the, this I that's in there that is being truthful. Mm-hmm. And I think the full path brings me the closest I get to right. experience to yeah. the truth that right. I could share with someone else. Sure. Uh, which is hard for me. Um, And in Buddhism, uh, ego is it's, it's attachment, it's rage, it's desire. It's, um, it's all of these manufactured narrative that I'm, 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 I'm writing to protect me and I'm writing it because it's a departure from reality. I'm terrified of the reality. It's too painful. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It is. It's the AA's kind of life on life's terms, right? It's, it's an inability to really experience and be there fully um speaking of suffering i'm mm. i just realized i had a dentist appointment at 10 40 <laughs> oh no i have to walk the eightfold oh, path yes. to the dentist yes. back to the reality of my absolutely team. absolutely but, um jordan we're gonna be working a lot together yes. and I, I i look forward to another chat and, well, and thank you how the uh recovery dharma meeting grows over in greenridge sanderson thank you. avenue thank you. that's fridays at 7 30 um yes. check it out Yes. Any parting words? 
Oh, well, thank you. Uh, I, I want to just really quickly, I want to, cause I think really this is, this is at the center of everything that we talked about. Um, it, it's, at the, it's at the center of Buddhism and everything we've talked about here. Um, it's a quote from uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche um, who says this, uh, let me just really quickly, if I have it here. Um, he says, um, he says, we need to look within ourselves. When we look, what do we see? Ask yourself, is there something worthwhile and trustworthy in me? Of course there is. But it's so simple that we tend to miss it or dis- discount it. When we look into ourselves, we tend to fixate on our neurosis, restlessness, and aggression. We've just been talking about that, right? Ego. But there's something else. Take a look. There's something more than all of that. We are willing. We're willing to wait, willing to smile, willing to be decent. We shouldn't discount that potential, that powerful seed of gentleness. We don't have to be embarrassed about it or hide it. We don't have to cast ourselves as bad boys and girls or as heroines, tough guys. We can afford to acknowledge and cultivate gentleness. And first of all, to treat ourselves better. If we don't appreciate ourselves, we have no ground to work with ourselves. So I think this for me is everything. Recognizing that there is strength, goodness, beauty, presence, awakening deep down inside. I'm not a flawed person. I'm not a bad person. I'm not a corrupt or totally depraved person. I'm a person, again, in union with everything. And that gives me strength. It gives me hope. It gives me the motivation to continue on. And I love talking about this stuff and helping people access that part of them that they think might is just effective, right? Or just fucked up or or whatever. Um, There is goodness inside of us. There's strength, but it's not what we think it is, right? It's not the ego. It's something else. Um, So yeah, I love that. And I love um, his writings. I love uh, just talking with you today, Joe, this has been a pleasure. um, And I'm really grateful for, yeah, just this opportunity and the opportunity to continue working with you guys and uh, recovery Dharma. I'm looking forward to it. So thanks so much. Yeah. Pleasure's mine, man. Yeah. Thanks All for right. coming on. I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of All Better. You can find us on allbetter.fm or listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Alexa. Special thanks to our producer, John Edwards, an engineering company, 570 Drone. Please like or subscribe to us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not on social media, you're awesome. Looking forward to seeing you again. And remember, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're right. Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts, and give us a five-star rating and a small review. 
This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you.